0: Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We actually will read verses 8 through 15. We're doing a kind of an unusual thing. We're bringing one series to a close and starting a new one, all in the same sermon. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. We're bringing to a close a series on stewardship, and we're beginning the Advent season, and we're looking at a particular text, and it's in this passage, 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and following, and the particular verse that is going to occupy our thinking this morning is verse 9. So as we continue to think about and bring to a close this matter of stewardship and introduce the season of Advent. Uh, Read with me, beginning at verse 8, 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. I say this not as a command. Not as a command. See, we're always looking for rules, aren't we? We always want rules. Remember the Old Testament passage, you know, don't glean all the way to the edge of your crops. Don't glean all the way. Well, Well, where's the, how far do I go? Where's the, what am I, I can't, I need a rule. Tell me how many rows to leave. Now, I don't say this by way of command. You see, we're trying to get at something deeper than rules and commands. I don't say this by way of command, the apostle says, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that your love also is genuine. See, there's something higher and deeper and wider and longer than commands. And it's love. And the question becomes, and it's a question I trust we've wrestled with through these last four weeks, what is big enough so to grab and capture my heart that the response of my heart begins to be commensurate with, begins to approximate the heart of God and His love for me. What's big enough to capture my heart and produce a response of love? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word. May he help us to understand and live it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that though... Incomprehensibly rich, you for our sakes. As we found ourselves in the midst of our destitution, you who were rich became poor so that we, through your poverty, might become unimaginably incomprehensibly rich. Oh God, drill this into my heart, I pray, and our hearts by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. First Sunday in Advent, so I get to ask the question that I think I've asked now for the sixth time. Barb and I have been here a little over five years. That means we've been here for six Advent seasons. So I get to ask this question on the first Sunday of Advent that I've asked five times before and now I ask for the sixth time as the lights are coming out, as the trees are going up, as the gifts are being purchased, why do we do this? Why do we do this? I mean, I know you're probably asking yourselves that question. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? But why do we do this? Uh, the the lights, we came home from having Thanksgiving with our couple of our kids, got home uh, late yesterday afternoon, early in the evening. The lights are up in the neighborhood, and more lights are going to go up. Why do the lights come out? Why do people who aren't here this morning and and, and you know, many, 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 many of whom are not in churches anywhere this morning, why do they put lights up? Why do they do that? Why do we do that? What I want us to do is reflect. What I want us to do is think. I want you to think. It could be that there's somebody here this morning, maybe one or two people, three people, you've never thought about this before. Why do these lights come out? between Thanksgiving and Christmas every year. C.S. Lewis in his great book, The Screwtape Letters, if you read The Screwtape Letters, it's this series of letters, a correspondence between uh, the elder devil and the younger devil, his nephew. And and the younger devil is in training, you know, in training to, to keep people's eyes closed to the beauty and wonder of Christianity. And one of the themes that recurs through these letters It begins very early on, but one of the themes that recurs as the elder devil speaks and writes to the younger devil, the thing he encourages him to do is to keep his patient, he calls him a patient, keep your patient from reflecting. Keep your patient from thinking. Keep your patient from stopping to take a look around and ask, what is this thing that we're doing What is life all about? What is the meaning of my existence? Keep your patient from doing anything like that because the moment a person begins to reflect and think, he is in real danger of taking life seriously and asking the deeper questions. Keep your patient from doing that. Why do we do this? Why do we put these lights up? Well, here's the answer. We do it because something happened. That's the answer I give you every year. We do this because something happened. We did it last year. We did it the year before. We did it the year before that. We did it decades ago. We did it 100 years ago. People have been doing these kinds of things for centuries. And the reason that we do this is because something happened. And the thing that happened, Paul summarizes In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though He was rich. Yet for your sake He became poor. So that you by His poverty might become rich. That's why we have lights. That's why we give gifts. I think we've lost sight of that. Haven't we? Isn't? Christmas, way too much about getting (laughs) rather than giving. But the reason we give gifts at, at bottom is because this thing has happened. Jesus, who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became man. That's why we do this. If you've never thought about that before, I beg you, I plead with you that you think about it. It is unprecedented. It is unparalleled in all of human history. What we're talking about is the incarnation. But what's interesting about this passage, and and this is where we sort of bring this stewardship thing to a close, as we move on into the Advent season, what's interesting about this verse is that it is not embedded, buried in a theological discussion. Paul's reference to the incarnation, he who spectacularly was rich, For your sakes became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That verse is not embedded in in theological reflection on the nature of the incarnation. He's not talking about the fact here in this passage that God who is, and these are phenomenal words, infinite. Meaning not bound by space. Eternal. Not bound by time. God who is infinite. Infinite, eternal, unchanging, not given to mutation, doesn't grow old, doesn't lose his hair, doesn't lose his hearing, doesn't lose his eyesight. Doesn't morph from one form into another, doesn't become more or less than what he is and always has been. God who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Larger catechism. Became, took flesh to himself. Somehow in the mystery of the providence of God and by the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, this God became incarnate, took a nature just like yours that nature was united to His eternal divinity. And somehow, in that union, this conceptus in the womb of Mary grew and came to full term and was born really and truly. And then was wrapped in some strips of cloth and was laid in a feeding trough in a barn in a third-rate city outside the capital city of a third-rate country. That's the incarnation. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about this. He's not talking about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, second person of the Godhead coming into this world by this miraculous union of two natures and conception and all the rest. He's not talking about that. What's he talking about? What's the setting in which... The Apostle Paul cites the miracle of the Incarnation. The setting and the context is the need of some desperately destitute, poor Christians. That's the setting. That's the setting in which Paul makes His appeal to the incarnation and sets before us Jesus who is the supreme model of giving. For those of you who haven't been here for the whole series, here are the things that we've we've talked about so far, the things we've seen. We're talking about principles, principles that govern how we think about giving. Principles, not rules. I've had wonderful response, I have to tell you, from people, from you all. Um, telling me that they've, they've, I mean, I'm grateful for this. They've never heard a series quite like this about stewardship. I can tell you I've heard that from people. I've had specific questions. People have asked specific questions. Well, what's the implication of that? What does that mean for this? How does it work itself out in this way? Please keep asking me those questions. Let's interact. Let's talk about the particulars. We are not talking about particulars in these sermons. We're talking about principles. And you and I before God, examining our lives, examining these principles, prayerfully before God should be asking, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? The answer for each of us will be different. For lots of different reasons. But here are the principles. Giving is gratitude to God for his goodness. That's Abel's story. Giving is gratitude to God for his amazing goodness. Following the fall. When everything should be obliterated and annihilated. God continues to show himself faithful and good. And not only faithful and good. But lavish and able. Noting, responding to that goodness brings a gift to God. Giving is gratitude for God's goodness. Giving is gratitude for God's grace. That's the story in Exodus 36. Israel experienced lavish grace. Exodus 36. You remember this story. That the people had to be constrained to stop giving. Why did they have to be constrained to, to bring from, from continuing to bring gifts? Because of God's lavish grace. And then we've looked at the Old Testament tithe. The Old Testament tithe, the simple design of the Old Testament tithe was to support the preservation and the proclamation of the gospel. The preservation and proclamation of the gospel. The tithe was given to the priests who were to teach, who were to instruct from their mouths were to come these words of life and they were to set before the people through the sacrificial system the means by which a holy God and an unholy people could be reconciled. The ministry of the gospel is supported by the tithe. But then last week we looked at the fact that the average Israelite gave more than a tithe. It wasn't just 10%. It was more than that. There were a couple of different tides, and the poor were in view with respect to one of those tides. But then at the end of the sermon last week, I said, you know, we're still in the Old Testament. If you're a new Christian living in the days when the gospel is being preached and extended into Asia Minor, into Macedonia, into Italy, You go to your Jewish friend and and you say to your Jewish friend who has embraced Christ, I don't know how to do this. Give me some help. And he says it's woven into the fabric of our life that we give 10% to support the ministry of the gospel. It's just the wisdom of God for the people of God. But then we ended last week in Luke 21. And looking at the widow, the woman, who brought what she had, everything that she had, and deposited it in the temple. When you come to the New Testament, the standard gets put on steroids. It gets launched into the stratosphere. It's true there's nothing said in the New Testament about the tithe. But you understand as you read through the New Testament, as you look at that passage, for example, in Luke 21, or if you look at this passage, the earlier verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it is, the, it is the, the example of the Macedonians who in the midst of their extremity gave liberally. Those become the examples in the New Testament. And the supreme example is Jesus himself. You see, giving gets put on steroids because of the gospel. It goes off the charts because of the gospel. And I'm still asking myself, what do you want me to do? Now what's going on in this particular situation with those principles again reviewed? Well, here's the story. Let me just summarize the story for you that leads us to this particular verse 2nd Corinthians 8 verse 9 here's the story Paul is a minister of the gospel if you know his story if you know just a little bit about his story you know that as he says in Galatians chapter 1 he was set apart for this ministry from his mother's womb it was God's design for him that he be sent to the Gentiles, a Jew educated in Tarsus, the leading intellectual city of his day, educated in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, the leading rabbinical scholar of his day, the best secular education, the best religious education. Paul was raised up by God to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he was commissioned by the church at Antioch to take that gospel. And he did that. He began to preach the Gospel. First in the islands of the eastern Mediterranean and then in what is now Turkey, Asia Minor. And the Gospel began to have success. And in Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul came back to Jerusalem to the leaders of the church. And he made a report to the leaders of the church regarding his ministry, his ministry among the Gentiles. And when the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem... Heard of the success of his ministry? They embraced him. They embraced his ministry. They said, "Go get him. Do it again, but do this one thing: just remember the poor." And in Galatians two ten, the apostle Paul reminds his Galatian readers that he was happy and willing to do that the very thing he wanted to do as he preached the gospel was remember the poor. What poor? Well, the poor who were back in Jerusalem. The poor who had embraced the gospel from among the Jewish population in and around Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. Jews who had come to Christ and who were being persecuted. Paul had persecuted them, remember? Paul had dragged them off to prison. And now these Jews back in Jerusalem are suffering opposition. They're suffering persecution. Some of them have been put to death. James was put to death in 44-45 A.D. Just within a decade of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Serious persecution. And so what does Paul do as he preaches the gospel? You see, his ministry of proclaiming the word of God is an emulation of the ministry of Jesus, who is the word of God incarnate. And Jesus, who is the word of God incarnate, isn't just engaged in a ministry of proclaiming the word of God. As Luke 24 reminds us, his ministry is a ministry of word and deed. Jesus didn't just preach. He identified with and cared for those on the margin, those who were poor, those who were on the outer edges of the society and the Apostle Paul as he goes out into these Gentile nations and preaches the gospel. He makes those Gentile Christians aware of a need back in Jerusalem and the need is these persecuted, terribly, terribly oppressed Jewish believers who are suffering extreme deprivation because of their commitment to Christ and their commitment to the gospel. And so when Paul gets to Corinth, he does this. He preaches the gospel. The gospel is responded to. And as the church is established, he makes the Corinthian believers aware of this need because he has an agenda. He has an intention. While he's on this missionary journey, he's going to collect offerings from the churches and he's going to take those offerings back to Jerusalem to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. look at 1 Corinthians 16, the first few verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I arrive. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. He did it. He preached the gospel. And he made these new Christians aware of a desperate need. And his design was to collect gifts so that that need could be met. And here you come now to 2 Corinthians. It's been a year. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 54, 55, something like that. Wrote 2 Corinthians in 55-56. He's about a year away from writing Romans, which he writes in 56 or 57. He's been to Corinth. He's preached the gospel. He's writing this letter in anticipation of coming to Corinth to clean things up in Corinth. And they needed to be cleaned up. He's coming back. And when he comes back, he wants to collect these gifts, which the Corinthians had indicated a year prior that they would give so that they could be collected so that that need would be met. But but, they got stuck, and they hadn't fulfilled their commitment. And so these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9 of Second Corinthians, are Paul's admonition to these believers that they fulfill their original commitment, that they fulfill their intention. And he is appealing to them, not commanding them, as he says in verse 8. Not commanding them. And later in the text, he, he says, basically he says, give as the Lord has prospered you. Verse 12, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. Examine your own situation, and based on your personal situation, give and give in order to meet this need. And so Paul will come, and hopefully by God's grace, we'll find that this encouragement, this admonition, will have been responded to. And then from there, from Corinth, when he is there in Corinth, he will write this letter to the Romans. And he will say to the Romans, if you look at Romans 15, verses 25 and following, he will say to the Romans that he's intending to do the same thing with them. He's writing the letter to the Romans. He's never been there. He's going to go to Rome. He wants them to know who he is, what his gospel is, And then you read this in in chapter 15, verse 22. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He's going to go to Rome. And he's going to look to the Roman Christians for the support that he needs in order to go on to Spain, to preach the gospel in Spain. He's going to ask the Roman Christians to support his missionary endeavor. But before he goes to Spain, verse 25, he's going to go to Jerusalem to take aid back to the saints. And verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. What's Macedonia and Achaia? Macedonia is up north. What is Achaia? It's where Corinth is. The Corinthians responded. The churches of Macedonia and Achaia responded raising these funds. And now Paul is going to go to Rome and he's going to ask for two commitments. He's going to ask for funding for the missionary enterprise to Spain and he's going to ask for support for the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Which do you want, Paul? I'll write you one check. No, I want two checks. I want two checks. I want a check for the missionary expansion of the gospel to Spain. And I want to check to meet the needs of the impoverished and destitute back in Jerusalem. That's the story. And Paul will go to Rome. He will go to Rome via Jerusalem. He will deliver the aid that is promised. And there he will be arrested. He will end up stuck in Caesarea for some period of time, maybe as long as two years. He'll finally end up in Rome. He may have been released when he finally got to Rome, but he was under house arrest. The tradition of the church says that eventually Paul was executed in Rome for his faithfulness to the gospel. That's the story. Now a couple of points. Number one, and I'm just going to give you passages because I don't have time to read them. Concern. For the destitute and impoverished, the marginalized, the needy, the poor is woven into the fabric of Jewish life and thinking. Can I share a story with you? I am rebuked by this. Of course I can share a story. You don't have any choice. When Barb moved into our home, the first and only people who came to our door were our Jewish next-door neighbors, welcoming the stranger into the neighborhood. It is woven into the fabric of Jewish thinking and life. It goes all the way back to Exodus 22. Don't mistreat the alien the stranger in the land. Remember that you were an alien, a stranger in the land. Remember who you were. And what is God saying in that? He is saying, in effect, treat the alien in your midst in the way that I treated you with compassion and grace and kindness. Here are the passages. Psalm 64 verses 4 through 6 where God is described as a defender of widows and of the homeless. Psalm 113 verses 5 through 9 where God is described as having compassion for the poor. Psalm 146 verses 5 through 9. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good tidings to the poor and to proclaim release to the captives. Those are just a few passages. Do a word study of these things. Do a cross-reference from any of these passages. It will go horizontal. It'll be like a flood overflowing its banks. It is woven into the fabric of Old Testament thinking to be conscious of, mindful of, and to care for those on the margins, those who are destitute, those who are impoverished, those who are in need. But here's the second thing, and this frankly is stunning. The thing that is stunning about this, the thing that is stunning about Paul making an appeal to the Corinthians in behalf of believers back in Jerusalem is this. This becomes a test case. Folks, I've ho- I got to say this again. I hope you understand I am every bit as challenged by this as I trust you are this offering that the Apostle Paul is taking for these destitute, impoverished believers back in Jerusalem becomes a test case of the veracity of the Gospel. Does the Gospel really do what Paul claims that the Gospel does? And the thing that Paul and Jesus And any good, true herald of the gospel will proclaim the thing that the gospel does is break down walls of alienation, separating not only God from man, but man from man. Remember, this is a Jew making an appeal to Gentiles that Gentiles give their money to meet the needs of Jews. This isn't a fraternity, friends. This isn't a bunch of ATOs getting together to raise a bunch of money for something that they like. A bunch of other ATOs who happen to be involved in some ministry someplace. This is a Jew Hated by Gentiles. A Jew who in turn hated Gentiles. Appealing to Gentiles that Gentiles part with their money to meet the needs of destitute Jews back in Jerusalem. I don't know if you know the story of the rape of Nanking. Nanking was a city on mainland China under the control of the Japanese in the 1930s late 30s. It was a city of some 400,000 people. I'm not picking on Japanese here. This is just a fact. And while under the control of the Japanese, right on the cusp of the Second World War, the Japanese exterminated the city. The lowest estimates of people executed were 200,000. The higher estimates are 350,000. Out of 430,000 people. Imagine. Someone from Nanking, China. Going to Japan. To preach the gospel. To the Japanese. After an atrocity like that. And seeing some people come to Christ. And then saying, you know what I want? What I want from you? I want your money. Because these people back here are destitute. And they need your support. That's how radical this is, folks. This is like someone from the south of Ireland going to the north of Ireland, preaching the gospel, and then asking the northern Irish to part with their money for people in the south. This is like a Palestinian crossing over the border to preach the gospel and then to ask Jewish converts for their money to take that money back to Palestinians to meet the needs of the destitute on the Gaza Strip. That's the thing that's stunning about this. And why can Paul do it? Paul can do it because Galatians three twenty seven and 28. If you are in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free. There is no longer black or white. There are no longer socioeconomic distinctions. There is no longer racial Ethnic hostility because Ephesians two sixteen and seventeen, because of what Jesus has done, the wall of hostility has come down, and out of the two he has made one people. One people. And so Paul, Paul can go to these Gentile Christians who are experiencing prosperity and appeal to them that from that prosperity they would care for the needs of people they have never seen and will never see and who are ethnically, religiously, socioeconomically, culturally, a polar opposite of who and what they are. But that's what the gospel does. Now I said last week, and I'll conclude with this, I said last week, As we move ahead, we've been together for five years. God has blessed us. God has prospered us. God is caring for us. I still have this great hope and confidence that we're going to meet our budget for this year. I'm praying for that. I trust you're praying for that. I said last week, I want, as we move into these next five years, I want a bigger piece of the action. What did I mean by that? I want a bigger piece of seeing the kingdom extended and enlarged from us out into this community and out into the world. What did I mean by that? I want to see us grow in our ability to support CareNet, Women's Refuge. I want to see us add some ministries, local ministries, who are caring for people on the margin, caring for the destitute, caring for the needy. I want a piece of that action. We've put three wells in the ground in Tanzania. We've collected funds for seven more. I want a bigger piece of that action. I want to see 150 wells in the ground over there. We support one UF campus minister in a destitute place, happens to be my son-in-law, whose wife happens to be great with child in keeping with the season. I want to see a dozen RUF campus ministers supported by our church. I want a piece of that action. There are 150 pastors in Tanzania who could use our support, could use our help. The Mahans who are seeking to plant churches in London. London. They're raising up Pakistani leaders who are going to need to be supported. I want a bigger piece of that action. So, you're asking the question, what do I do? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But the thing I want to ask all of us to do is take all of this very seriously. Giving is gratitude to God for His goodness, giving is gratitude to God for His grace. The tithe supports the preservation and proclamation of the gospel, and then there's this whole business of the New Testament standard which puts giving on steroids, leading to the supreme example who is Jesus Christ himself, who, though he was rich beyond all splendor, incalculably, immeasurably rich, for my sake became poor so that His, through his poverty, I might become incalculably, immeasurably, incomprehensibly rich. What do I have out in front of me? Eternity. Eternity. An eternity in which to enjoy the lavish, incomprehensibly great riches of the new heaven and the new earth all wrapped up and the incalculably great riches of the grace of God. What am I asking us to do? Folks, at this point, I just want us to pray. I want us to reflect on these things and pray and ask God to help us. Let's do that as we head into this Advent season. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please minister to me. Please minister to each of us. Please give us grace to know how to respond, and please, O Lord, may that response, as Paul pled with the Corinthians, God, may that response not be the result of any kind of coercion. God, save us from that. But may our giving be a response motivated by a greater apprehension of your incalculable, incredible love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you became poor so that we might become rich. We pray in your name. Amen.